We are in Ephesians chapter six. <clears throat> we are almost, almost done with this uh, letter. And uh, I think we've got one, two, three more weeks, I think after this week, and we'll be wrapping up Ephesians. We're in a paragraph in Ephesians chapter six, five through nine. I wanna read it and ask you a question to kind of um, shape our uh, discussion this morning. Let, let's look at it, verse five. Whatever version you have, some say bondservants, some say slaves. Either way, that's the point. Mine says, bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Okay, here's the question. Um, what does the gospel affect? Come on now, you, uh, it's been a while, but you, I want you to talk to me. So what does the gospel affect? Are you sure? Good answer. I just wanted to hear you say it. Um, because if you have ever felt in the last several months uh, in the specificness of what Paul is dealing with, if you've ever felt uncomfortable, now you know um, why the gospel gets to everything. Gospel goes into the uncomfortable places. It goes into things that are broken and twisted, things that are jacked up from top to bottom, and things that you kind of just set off to the side and not want to consider. Um, we have dealt with things as specific as how we use our mouths and how we talk to one another. We have talked in specifics of how we are to forgive and forgive the quantity of forgiveness, that the, the amount of we've been forgiven. We've talked about who we are to love, right? It's one thing to talk about love, but then when you include the people that you really hate, well, now you're into the real uncomfortable stuff and Paul has dealt with that. Everything that Paul addresses in his application to the good news that Jesus saves sinners like us goes to the core issue of the heart. It goes right down to the soul of the issue. It goes down to where we're supposed to be thankful, watch this, in all things, oh, suffering and trouble and discouragement and depression and loss. Well, that's what he said. And you said it too. The gospel affects everything. Paul's talked about how the gospel affects our sexuality. He's talked about how it affects our view of people and how we use our position that the world uses position to lord it over people. Gospel people, changed people don't. We use our position to serve people. That's the point that Paul makes. And he uses several examples we've been looking at for the last several weeks. For example, wives to husbands, husbands to wives, children to parents, parents to children, just to name a few. I hope you noticed in those illustrations that Paul uses that he starts, when he gets real specific about the applications of the gospel's effect in chapter five and chapter six, he zones in on the home. That's what he does. Marriage, children, and parenting. And, and to be fair, at first blush, 
our paragraph today doesn't seem to fit into that category at all, but I want to spend some time today trying to prove to you that it does fit into the, the, the home discussion as well. Okay, if we zoom out on the big picture of the gospel's effect, at least as it pertains to this section of scripture, verse 21, this is kind of the blunt force trauma of its effect. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That should be our bumper sticker. That is what Paul has been saying and proving in all his illustrations since he started this discussion. Gospel people live a life of mutual submission out of reverence for Christ. And all of Paul's illustrations hover around the everyday, the average, the mundane, the stuff that everybody has to do. These aren't grand gospel applications. These are not huge missional so what's. They're just like in your, in your home. Wives, in your home. Husbands, in your home. Kids, that's what he thinks, okay? And it is obvious to us, and we know that the gospel has impact not just in our homes. It has impact everywhere. That's what we said. Its effect is everything. Businesses and countries and nations and races and all sorts of stuff. It just keeps going and spills out over all the edges. But I want to make a point for why I think Paul only illustrates with this idea of the everyday. When he could take the gospel and push it to the corners of discussion, he leaves it centered around just what you would do in your home. Um, and, And I think Paul's reason for doing that is because this wonderful good news that we call our own, if it doesn't transform our everyday life, we got no shot that it'll affect the world. And the conviction in our hearts, and you know this, right? To talk to a neighbor over the fence that Jesus saves and have him hearing you yell at your wife in your home, what does that do to the message of the gospel? They call us something. There's a dirty word they call us. It starts with an H. What is it? That's exactly right. And the word sticks. And the word sticks because there's things we say that we don't live. And Paul's saying, let's just boil how this gospel affects every day. Just do the everyday well. Do it like Christ well. Let it ripple into all these tense, difficult, ordinary things. Let it affect all of that stuff. So Paul says, let's start at the center. We'll get to the outside. Let's start there. And I think that's why he leaves all of his illustrations and examples to those mundane things. So he says to wives, husbands, moms, and dads, and kids, and are you ready for this? Slaves and masters. And you might sit there with several questions, and I did too. There's maybe some trouble in this passage for us, but at a minimum, there's confusion. One, where does this fit into his like linear thought of everyday or household? How does the slave and master thought fit in there? You could also struggle with, with this. Why doesn't Paul condemn slavery? I mean, he's got a shot. He's bringing it up. It's a bad thing, right? Why doesn't he, why doesn't he crush it when he has an opportunity to... And then the, all, the obvious conclusion to, at least a question we need to ask, well, how does this fit with me? How, how, does, how does the church respond to slaves and masters um, that Paul writes about here? But let's, let's deal with where it fits, first of all. Just so you know that it fits in the common, ordinary day household experience. Almost every household in Ephesus was affected by the master-slave relationship. 
The estimates are that 60 million people in that region, in the Roman Empire, were slaves, half of the population. Um, slavery was the, the backbone to all business and economic uh, growth. Um, it was the way households worked and operated. The church in Ephesus was filled with both slave and master. They were all getting converted and they're all in the church. And so Paul writes this letter to the, this group of people. So in Ephesus, to the Ephesians, this discussion about slaves and masters is the everyday, it's the common. It's as clear as children, parents. It's as clear as wives and husbands. To so them, it fit in the same text, all right? Now, it's important at this point to talk a little bit about the, what slavery was and the differences between slavery then and slavery that probably pops into your mind when you consider our, our history in this country. And I don't want to belittle it. No doubt that there are some abuses, if not several abuses going on. The, the structure of slavery was the same. It was that slaves were the possession of the owners and the owners, some owners could and did abuse. But, but what most writers would agree on in looking at the history of slavery and mas masters and slaves in that day is that by the time Paul is writing this letter and all the letters to the churches, slavery had begun to change in the culture. For examples, uh, slaves under the Roman rule could, could count on being set free. There was, a, there was a termination point on your enslavement. It, it's been found that 50% of the slaves at the time were freed by the time they were 30 years old. So there was no long-term slavery for a lot of them. Slaves themselves owned property and slaves too. Slaves were business owners and CEOs. They were prominent people in the business world a little bit different than our, our at least our history. Um, slaves, most of them purchased their own freedom. And, and this is interesting. Most slaves put themselves in slavery. If you had a debt, one of the common ways to pay your debt was put yourself in servitude to someone to pay off that debt. You were a slave until it, it was paid. Believe this or not, uh, as well, that the social status, wherever you felt you wanted to be in your social circles was directly dependent on your owners. So if you felt like you wanted to be a Roman citizen and you weren't, well, all you needed to do is put yourself in servitude to a Roman citizen and suddenly now guess what you are. If you wanted to be in some other social stratus, will align yourself with that particular social stratus owner and it becomes yours too, okay? But, but I guess I, I tell you all that and there's many other examples to, just to make the point, all right? Slavery at the time was nothing like the slavery that pops in your mind. And another, I think, an interesting point uh, to compare and contrast what pops in our mind, slavery in the Roman world was not race-related. It wasn't connected on skin color or a type of people. It was just slavery. Your own child could put themselves in, in, into that condition. But nevertheless, it was, it was clearly different than what, what we know, or at least what we're familiar with in our discussions of it from time to time. But, and I gotta put a but there, it does not change the fact that we're talking about slavery. So the question needs to be dealt with, why doesn't Paul deal with it? Why doesn't he try to abolish it here? Why, why doesn't he try to abolish it anywhere? You don't find anything in scripture that condemns the idea of slavery. 
Let me give you some reasons. Um, many I gleaned from some of the stuff that I read. It seems, they seem reasonable. I, I don't know if they're gonna be exhaustive or conclusive, but they're gonna help us at least get some direction in why he doesn't deal with it. But it's important to remember that even though Paul doesn't condemn it, he also doesn't condone it, which is completely unlike what he's done with marriage and children prior examples. For, for example... In those two other illustrations of mutual submission in the household, he connects the whole concept or institution of marriage to an eternal promise and he uses the illustration of Christ's marriage to the church. And he says to husbands and wives, this is how you should function, example Christ and his church. When he talks to children about their role in the home or parents, their role to the children, he talks about natural law. In fact, he says, children obey your parents because this is right. In other words, paraphrase, and everyone knows it's right. This is the way it works all around the world. It's natural that children obey their parents. And by the way, do it because there's a command with a promise. So he connects it not only to this grand promise of God, the command of God and natural law. Nowhere does Paul uh, deal with slavery and call it natural law. And he doesn't command it. He just states that it is. Okay, that's, that's one thing. He's not, he's not supporting it, but he's not, um, he's not crushing it either. Here's the second thing. The second reason Paul doesn't condemn it is because Paul's instruction that we're gonna look at today to both slave and master ultimately transform the relationship. We, we get to look at this more specifically, but just to tease it with the question, can you imagine the impact of the Christ-like ethic in the relationship of slave and master. If everyone was mutually submitting, if everybody was mutually loving, if everybody was mutually giving and forgiving, changes everything, radically changes everything. And we'll see Paul's commands in just a little bit. One other uh, observation might be helpful. Everyone to a man that I studied would say uh, that Paul's instructions in its totality to the church, all of his epistles were the ultimate reason why slavery came to an end in the first place. It ultimately did deal a death blow to it. Paul taught the church about the worth of all men, that we're all made in the image of God, that we are to love each other and treat each other as brothers and sisters, treat each other like we want to be treated, right? He taught about the universal nature of sin, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and everybody needs the same Savior. He taught that. And most people would say the impact of that teaching, Christ in people, brought about the end of slavery. It's interesting that Paul, when he's even talking about sin, uses the imagery of slavery to talk about it. Sin is slavery. It creates divisions. It locks us up. It fans pride and arrogance to the point that we think, or some people think, they're better than others. Jesus came to set people free from that kind of slavery. And a freed people see people in a whole new way. I am not the first to tell you, and this is not um, complicated, but it is profound. God's gospel working in the hearts of God's people affects and infects the world, and the world will never be the same. Wherever you see good, Christ good in the world. It's because God's people got it and told it. That's the effect of the gospel. The mission is that grand. Christ is why, ultimately, Christ is why slavery was abolished here and in other places around the world. Now, we have another question to deal with 
And, and that would be something as simple as, well, how does a passage to slaves and masters apply to me in 2018 in Gilbert? I don't, I don't know. Well, let me just tell you, you've probably heard a thousand sermons on this passage yourself, but almost every, in fact, every commentator, every writer I could find uh, would agree that a relationship between slaves and masters is paralleled most closely by our, our connection in work and worker here, like employee-employer in our culture today. People who put themselves in servitude to another, a person who's responsible for another. In fact, I couldn't find another version of application. I don't know how many of you have ever heard this passage taught in any other circle before, but everybody that I've ever heard takes it to that place, and, and we will do it as well. And, and I would suggest to you the context of it is pretty interesting, that most likely the fact that every home had bond servants under authority to a master seems to make contextual sense that Paul's bringing it up as the next example of mutual submission in Christ in the home. So here's, here's where he goes. And with Paul's mind on that subject, he does now take it to the issue of work, those who work. So let, let's look at this again. And, and I'm certain you already forgot what I read. I want to read it again, and I want you to listen for your words, okay? Let me ask you a question. How many workers are in the house today? You are employed. Raise your hand. <laughs> Don't feel bad. How many employers in the house today? Okay. I need you to listen to your words, because they're going to be specifically in here for you. Here's what he says. Again, bond servants obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's a bond servant or is free. Masters do the same to them. And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Paul's pretty clear in laying out for us, I, I would call them five gospel attitudes for those of us who work for others. Um, here's the first thing he says, and you said it, so I'm just gonna keep punking you with this. You said the gospel affects everything. Okay, here you go. Workers obey your masters. Now that is not a mistake, it's not a typo. It wasn't like an intense coffee moment for Paul. He meant to say what he said, okay? He picked the word intentionally. By the way, it is the same word that Paul uses for children obeying parents that we see just in a little bit or saw before. Okay, why? Why does Paul call workers to obey their bosses? Uh, uh, pretty simple, because it's a gospel behavior. Obedience is what the gospel does in people. In fact, let, let me prove it with your first spiritual cry. Your first response to the good news was obedience. You obeyed the call of the Spirit. It is the attitude and the demeanor of God's people. It's what the gospel does to us. It makes us an obedient people. Obedience is a changed heart lifestyle. And now I'm gonna confess, I know it ain't easy. I know it's challenging, but we do know it's our calling and we know that the word of God promises a blessing to follow obedience, don't we? We know this. So in its most simplistic form, it is an employer's job to decide what needs to be done and it's this easy. The, the employee's gotta do it. 
and not to question the wisdom of the decisions that were made. Now, if they ask you to do something God forbids, forbids you to do something God commands, then you can go rogue. But in the main common thing, your everyday task is not to, not to disobey your, your boss. It isn't our job. Paul says it just as blunt force as he can, obey your earthly masters. Now, that command is not complicated for me to understand. Anybody struggling with do obey your earthly masters? Pretty, pretty simple imperative, right? Obeying it, on the other hand, is challenging. Because every one of us, I don't care how old you are, are still a little kid on the inside, right? They tell you to do something, and you might do it, but you're standing up, right, on the outside. You're resisting emotionally and practically in some cases. And I think Paul knows that's in us. He knows the, 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 the old remnant of sin and the way it screams and barks and wants its own. He knows that, and so he now conditions the word obedience with a kind of obedience with these other thoughts. Here's what he says. We are to obey with fear and trembling. That's what he says. Let me give you another word for that. Respect is the word that Paul has in mind here. This isn't fear of being hit. It is not cowering from violence. That's not the kind of word that Paul's using here. It's the word reverence. Revere the authority. It is, by the way, the same word that we all know of fearing God. Revering God for who he is and his position in the cosmos, all right? And Paul uses the same word to say, listen, obey your three masters with reverence. Respect them. Why? Because they're in an authority, not of their own choosing. God's in charge of authority. No king's getting put in place without God. He establishes everything. So we respect our employer's position and authority as it represents God's in our life. I know we've got challenges. I have worked a thousand jobs almost in my life, in my young life. Uh, before I got into ministry, I worked in construction. And this is no slight against the national organization of iron workers, but I worked with some iron workers and... Uh, most vile, violent group of men I've ever seen in my life. I can't even repeat the things I heard and saw. Um, and for me to have to obey them at 22, it didn't work out so good. I, I failed miserably. Because in my mind, I couldn't justify stupid leadership or broken leadership, like submit to that. But you understand there's no conditions in Paul's command, right? He didn't say, obey your earthly masters if they're smart. Obey your earthly masters if they smell good. You, you hang out with an iron worker, you know what I'm talking about, okay? <laughs> Bottom line is, we all have our reasons. But Paul's point is pretty clear, respect. And I think the way it works is this. If we truly can see that our respect of the authority of God that he puts in our life is directly flowing from our respect for Christ, then at least we've got a shot. If you can't see this being something God is in control of and that God is sovereignly in, then I think you can struggle with the whole thing. But if you know he said it, then maybe there's a better demeanor. Paul adds another aspect to our obedience. He says that we are to obey sincerely, or the phrase is with a sincere heart. Sincerity is two words in the Latin that make it up. It is without wax. And it goes back to a illustration or an example in that culture, a potter. And these would be, I would call crooked or dishonest potters. Um, they would uh, fire a, a pot or whatever. And, and uh, 
many times pots come out with voids in them or cracks in them or whatever. And if you were an honest potter, you would throw that away, right? Or use it for something else. But dishonored ones would melt wax into the cracks and the voids and cover it up and sell it to you as a good pot. And you would take it home and as soon as you put anything warm in it, you got a mess on your hands. Paul says, don't do that with your work. In other words, that little meaning actually is singleness of heart. It's undivided effort. It is doing your very best. It is honest service. Believing employees have a high calling to give it our all. In fact, no one should outwork a Christian, in my opinion, because we serve somebody worth it. Let me use the illustration of that word without wax. In other words, no Christian should have cracks or fillers in our effort. Nothing like that in our work. It's all honest. Here's another idea of this obedience. That we are to obey conscientiously or faithfully is the word. It's verse six. There's not one word or one short phrase to define the meaning of this. It's the whole thought of verse six. A question might help us really get to the point or the heart of Paul's thought here. So let me ask it. Do you work just as hard when the boss isn't looking? That's the point that Paul wants to make. And it is so like us to fudge. Nobody's here, take a longer break. Nobody's here, take a longer lunch. Nobody's here... You know, that's how, that's how it works. I, again, have, am the example of what not to do in my life. Uh, this isn't an employment situation, but you'll get the point. I, it, when I wrestled, they made you take certain kind of classes. You had to pick these, you know, electives. And I picked typing, like I'd ever use that. And it was, um, it was typewriters. So I, don't, I thought about putting a picture up so you know what we're talking about. But it was a typewriter, and these keys would slap against paper, and you would have printed words on a page. So, um, but in this typing class, and I was only there to, just to check the box, you know what I'm saying? Um, they would put you through tests. They would teach you the keys and all that stuff. Well, at my desk happened to be joined to another desk right on the edge of the teacher's desk. This was high school, so don't judge, all right? And on the edge of her desk was the time clock for the time tests. Well, the plug to the clock was by my feet, so it didn't take me but five seconds to figure out every time she said a five-minute type test and walked out in the hall, I could take off my shoe and unplug the clock. Our class was so awesome at typing. I can't tell you how, how do they do 80 words a minute? This is amazing. Um, so you have a picture of what it is to fudge the whole idea when no one's looking. Don't judge me. Paul says the Christian mandate is to work hard all the time, not just when we're being watched. One last condition of our obedience, Paul says, is that we obey with a good attitude. The actual phrase he uses here is from the heart, or New American Standard would say, um, goodwill. In other words, it's not enough to obey, church. It's not enough to be respectful and to be honest and outwork everybody. It's not enough to have no voids or cracks in what you do. And it's not enough to, to be honest and faithful and still be grumpy. And this is where we get caught, right? I'll do it, but... Let me just suggest to you that joy is the face of our Savior. 
so therefore joy is the face of his bride. Okay. That seems to be specific enough for the workers in the room, but he also has something to say to those who employ. And some of you raised your hands, so you need to hear this. Verse 9 makes it pretty clear and pretty fast. Masters do the same to them. We're not going to go into detail because I just went into detail of what the same is. He, he simply says, ready? And it's the same thing he's been saying for the last several paragraphs. Mutual submission. Do the same, same service, same respect, same sincerity, same conscientious work, same joy. And doesn't that fit in the Christian ethos? Jesus said in Luke chapter six, do unto others what? As you'd have them do unto you. So the fact that Paul would come back and say, okay, workers do this, work really well, do it with this great spirit, and not come back to the employers and say, oh, you treat them like you want to be treated. Seems to make sense, doesn't it? Okay, I, I know this. I've had the responsibility a few times in my life to oversee in an employer kind of a situation, maybe sub-employer, but enough to experience it. And I understand how easy it is to be concerned with the bottom line, more concerned with the bottom line than people. I know that challenge. But I think this is true, and I think if anyone is of of older age, they would come up and echo this. They could preach this better than me, but but there isn't anyone I know who at the end of their age is trying to figure out how to make the bottom line bigger. They're trying to figure out or trying to deal with the regret of how they treated people. That's everyone's regret. It's my regret. It's everyone's thoughts at the end of your life. Man, I wish I had more money. Nobody thinks that. Everyone wonders how they failed in the love department. So hear it now. Now, if you have the privilege and responsibility to employ people, let me just ask you a question. Do you show the same interest in them and their affairs as you want them to show to your affairs? Because that's what Paul is saying. It's mutual. It goes both ways. And by the way, after I'm done talking about this, it does kind of blow our minds about, wouldn't that be great to work in a place like that? Wouldn't it be great if we were all caring about each other? Gospel, that is the kingdom. It's what we do. Okay, Paul does, however, add one specific imperative to the employer here. Do you see it in verse nine? Master, do the same to them. And what's the next phrase? Stop your what? Threatening. Can I paraphrase this just so it doesn't miss us? Don't be a jerk. If you're responsible for others, don't be one of those. Don't be mean. Don't be harsh. Don't yell to get your point across. Don't threaten. Don't be a bully because you could be. Care for the whole person. Care for how they're doing and how their family's doing. Pay them a fair wage. Don't overburden them. And I, I know that culture, I know that the way we've done things in the past, our daddy taught us how to do this. I know there's lots of reasons why you might want to blow this off or kind of marginalize it to less than important. I would suggest to you, you would do yourself a huge favor to obey Paul here. You'll have no regrets. Now, um, let me finish with some motivation. As I reflect back on my life again, back to my construction life, um, we built commercial buildings, right? And, uh, but we didn't build anything noble. 
Like we didn't build a worship center for a church. We didn't build a commons coffee shop thing. It wasn't even noble. You know what we specialized in? Sewage treatment plants. Nobody cares. I mean, until you care. Nobody cares. I worked for that company for a year and a half in the most vile places and uh, never saw a single inspired person. Not a carpenter, not a cement uh, guy, not a bricklayer, not an iron worker, not the bosses, not the superintendent. Nobody was inspired. It was a job to do. They all worked for the bottom line. The firm had a bottom line. It was called profit margin. And every schmuck on the job site had a bottom line. It was called a paycheck. And we all worked for the bottom line. Can I suggest to you this morning that every Christian in this room has a bottom line. It is different than those. The bottom line is this, that you serve Christ. I don't know what you do, and I'm glad you get to do it, and I'm glad it, God uses it to provide for you. But even that secondary to the primary, the primary is we serve Jesus in the most mundane, in the most horrible places, in sewage treatment plants, in things that nobody care about and nobody even recognizes. You serve Christ in the places where you're absolutely convinced that nobody's paying attention and you're gonna, you're gonna go belly up when a boss is too harsh or too demanding. You serve Christ. Our motivation isn't our circumstances. It's certainly not our paychecks. Paul makes it abundantly clear in this paragraph our motive. Let me read to you Eugene Peterson's paraphrase, and I think it rings just a little bit louder. Servants, respectfully obey your earthly masters, but always with an eye to obeying the real master, Christ. Don't just do what you have have to do to get by, but work heartily as Christ's servants doing what God wants you to do. And work with a smile on your face, always keeping in mind that no matter what happens to, to be giving, who happens to be giving the orders, you're really serving God. Good work will get you good pay from the master, regardless whether you're a slave or whether you're free. You see the overwhelming sense of motivation? Christ, we serve Christ. We have a master. Doesn't matter who we work for, we have a master. Maybe that will raise those of you who think you do worthless work, raise it higher. Maybe it'll take those of you who think you do grand work as an employer and it'll bring you down. And what happens is there's this common thing in gospel people, which is kind of how I want to leave you there's another application or motivation in, in this for both workers and bosses. We all have different roles. That's true. We've seen it in parents and children and wives and husbands. We know that. But we have the same value to God. That is true. And it's interesting to me that every application of the gospel, everyone you can ever find, does one thing consistently. And it's specific in these two chapters that we've been studying. The good news makes servants out of everybody. There is no exclusion. So if, if there's a part of you that, that feels like you don't enjoy the role of servant, I want to try to tell you it's a, good, it's a good job to have. If you feel like you're in a condition where you never need to be a servant, I'm going to tell you, come and join the team because we're all servants because that's what the gospel does with us. We have one master, amen? Let's pray. God, help us in uh, every day. 
in the ordinary things that we do with our life to have this good news that sinners can be saved, us specifically have been saved, have it affect how we work, the demeanor in which we work, and the attitude. Uh, Father, give us joy in the things that serve you. Help us to embrace the role of servant, every one of us, from worker to employer. All to your glory, God. We pray in Christ's name, amen.